0: are listening to total reboot the only podcast on the internet about movies my name is cameron james and i'm currently staring at a computer screen that has a face on it a face of a a glorious human being who goes by the name of alexi toliopoulos It is my pleasure to be transmitting to you from Mm.
1: the future, Cameron, giving you a word of warning as if a message on an answering machine about things that are about to get a little bit Millennium Mind fucked up for you, (laughs) the soon to be, okay?
0: Yeah, it's amazing technology what we've uh, worked with here on Zoom. You are broadcasting, I believe, what, 30 years into the future? 30
1: freaking years from the future to the past, talking to you to tell you... Things are going to get a little bit strange. (laughs) Things are
0: weird. It's so... That explains your encyclopedic knowledge of movies because you've had more time Mm. to read about them and learn about them. Absolutely.
1: More time to watch them, more time to read listicles that cover many many movies uh, through people's careers and stuff and to just read them and really get stuck into them I've read every collider list every ranking <laughs> that has ever been produced and there are over 400,000 of them in my time
0: are they still making listicles 30 years into the
1: future Of course the main culture that we live in is listicles in the future <laughs> it's all we've got we don't we can barely watch movies anymore but the listicles survive <laughs>
0: Hey, before we dive into our Millennium Mindfuck movie today, let's break a little bit of news, Lex. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. We have some exciting news. Yes, it was
1: recently announced by Screen Australia, a government subsidiary program that funds projects that are worthy of being made in the screen arts. And we were just deemed worthy, baby.
0: We were. So, Screen Australia, they make movies, they make TV, they give money to filmmakers and artists to create cinema. and They they create content for
1: listicles to be about (laughs) often.
0: Future listicles are all getting made thanks to Screen Australia. And as it was announced yesterday that we are the recipients of some money, of some funding, that means that we get to make one of our dream projects, Lex. We, uh... After many years, after many trying circumstances, we are coming back with a third season of our Finding Investigative series.
1: Yes, it is a new mystery, a third pop culture based riddle for us to uncover in an entirely new world, entirely new scape and scope. And we're doing it on freaking video, baby. You finally get to see us.
0: You're going to see how we do it being transmitted via the um, optical eye of the camera and Mm -hmm. will be broadcast to you, not on a cinema screen, not on the small screen, but on your laptop screen or your phone because it will, it is officially a YouTube series. It will be YouTube. You could
1: probably stream it to your TV. Heck, Mm. you could probably rent out a cinema and watch it all if you want to do that. It will be weird if you do that, especially without letting us know if you just decide to do it. And that would actually make me feel fucking strange if you were to do that. But you... I mean, I can't really stop you. Legally, I might be able to. But... You can break the laws if you want. So, we will be doing that for YouTube. It's going to be freaking awesome. We're collaborating with our dear friends over at Auntie Donna. Max Miller is going to be directing it for us, with us. Mm -hmm. And we've got Sophie Brams, who's one of our favorite writers, writing it with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been working in the A world for so long. It's interesting for us to chuck a V on there and go A-V style, babe. I've always loved V. Always loved it. Yeah, always. I've always said that about you. That's a guy (laughs) that adores V.
0: (laughs) So it is exciting. You know, finding Drago was so much fun. Finding Desperado was a deeper level. And this new season, finding Yeezus, as it's currently called, I think is going to kick it up another gear entirely, like both uh, in the scope of the mystery that we are... Investigating and the emotional depth of it and mm-hmm. you know the philosophical ramifications of it. It's and all very exciting to me. I- I'd even say hopefully kick it up an option gag
1: wise too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll I'm get a planning few to
1: make that. this one quite funny. I wanna put a couple of
0: goofs in this one.
1: Yeah, we're going to put some IMDb goofs on there. We're going to make some mistakes on camera. That will be obvious enough for you to fucking put in a listicle of 10 times these dumb fucks proved that they were dumb fucks on screen.
0: <laughs> so that's exciting. We'll be working on uh, finding Yeezers over the next four or five months with this awesome team, as we mentioned. And uh, I think, you know, we've, we've teased a little, little bit about what's going to happen with our... Um, podcast feed and with everything else in the future all of this is going to come together in one beautiful venn diagram of art and commerce exactly which are the two things we care about
1: hopefully one day cam there'll be a listicle out that is like 10 ways to ingest the work of cameron james and Alexi toliopoulos
0: yeah i'd love that right now there's currently only really two or three two three maybe five
1: six you know but we want to get up to 10 or 11 <laughs> we want to go freaking Spinal Tap style. Go up to 11, dude. <laughs>
0: so, so we're going to have more news about that dripping out over the little while. Uh, and yeah, the news will dripping, be dripping. <laughs> speaking of dripping, this is a drippy, icky little flicky that we're going to be talking about today.
1: <laughs> it's one of the drippiest sci-fi pictures. We are talking about Mr. Terence Gilliam. Very English name for a famously American guy. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Terrence Gilliam, aka Montague
0: Python's <laughs> funny little flick called 12 Monkeys. Isn't 12 it? Cheeky Monkeys, in it? <laughs> 12 Cheeky Freaking Monkeys.
1: <laughs> this is one that, as soon as it kind of came up as one that could potentially be in the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries, especially the extended season, mm. I was excited when you brought it up because this was maybe the one, Cam. That for me, back in the day, was humongous. Amazing, it made me called 24 freaking monkeys. Because I had such a huge adoration for this movie. And I really, really loved it. Was this a similar story for you?
0: Brother, you are speaking my linguini over here. Oh, okay. And you know what? I don't think we've ever even talked about 12 monkeys um, off mic, you know, in no. our private lives.
1: No, this is a merging of the public and the private today <laughs> on the podcast where we will be having a premier discussion on our thoughts on <laughs> Terrence Gilliam. I actually don't even know if his name's Terrence. I've got no idea what Terrence is. I mean, what else is on. it going to be? Well, he's American.
0: It could be something like, you know, Terrence or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I mean, uh, let's look it up right now. Yeah. I, just in the interest of... You know, getting his name correct. It is Terrence. It's Terrence Terrence. Vance Gilliam. (laughs) Oh,
1: Vance is very American. There we go. Vance. Terrence Terrence Vance Gilliam. Vance Williams (laughs) (laughs) Gilliams. Well, I don't even know if we've ever talked about this freaking guy before.
0: No. And you know what? Both Terry Gilliam and, you know, I I, want to tell you why this movie means so much to me. It's because when I was a kid and I would go to the video store. And I would peruse the aisles of what weeklies I'm going to get out, you know? Yeah. This video cover. Oh, okay. Was always one that I was drawn to. I loved everything Mm. about it, the artwork. I loved Bruce's big bald dome. Mm -hmm. I loved, like, you see a little bit of Brad Pitt's crazy face in the corner. I loved the title, 12 Monkeys. Like, something about it just drew me in. And uh, years before I was even ready to watch it, I would always go to it at the video store and read the synopsis on the back cover. And I was always, like, entranced by the idea of this movie. So much so that when I finally watched it, uh, I would get it out so regularly. Anytime, really? anytime we went to the video store, I would always, I would always find my way back to 12 Monkeys. I would always get it out. And I think at the time it was the first like clever, twisty sci-fi movie that I'd seen. I mean, maybe I'd seen Terminator 2, um, which is equally as twisty, I guess, in its like logic mm. of time travel, um. Especially for a teen You know A young teen Like a 12 year old Or whatever Well but, it's actually um, Younger
1: than teen You know Teens begin at the age of 13 12, so 12 is 13 yeah. That's a tween Yeah You're between You're betwixt the two That's why I call them stages When you're between the two
0: <laughs> Now when I, I don't call them stages. That's absurd <laughs> That is pure absurdity From the mind of someone Like Terrence Gilliam Or something Yeah That would be one of his movies I reckon it would be stages. Twig stages. <laughs> So But I would like I got it out so much I was I loved the weird Like pretzel logic of it I loved the idea That it was Bending back in on itself And this You know The opening and closing Of this movie Which is now Maybe a trope That's been done A million times Mm. In sci-fi And in Time travel Especially This was the first time I'd seen that trope The idea of The end is the beginning Is the end is the beginning You know The the snake eating itself, shit. Yes, we love that Ouroboros shit that
1: on the Ouroboros podcast. Ouroboros shit, brother. We fucking love Ouroboros on the podcast, dude.
0: And I like. And that I is just...
1: something that we have set off the record before. This yeah. is not a premiere discussion on the. We've fact talked that about we Ouroboros work. a lot, dude. We've even, even done an Ouroboros. Yeah, to each we other, did dude. Ouroboros
0: on each other. <laughs> it was crazy. It was a wild afternoon. It was weird, wild stuff. <laughs> yeah, of
1: course Johnny Carson would be involved <laughs> in this kind of stuff, dude. He is a freaky little guy, Johnny Carson.
0: <laughs> so, so I guess in summation, what I'm saying is this movie. It like it kind of haunted my tween age, years because. Mm. I I kind of developed an obsession for it and I could never quite explain why. And I hadn't really revisited it in the years since until, you know, this week when we uh, decided to do it. What about you? Tell me about your early recollections of this Flicko.
1: Well, I would say that much like the guy that we talked about in the last couple of weeks, Mr. Peter Weir, um, Terry Gilliam was someone that I idolized a lot because, you know, I have always had the interest in comedy and I've always had the interest in film and I've always had an interest in genre. And I think Terry Gilliam was kind of like the Edgar Wright, or but more prolific Edgar Wright of his day, where he has like a kind of sick fuck comedic mindset like all these films are comedic in tone and they all have this kind of genre hybridity about them where they are like gen- genre takes that are funny that are comedy and i don't think anyone really does it like him and for me as like a teenager he was one of my big discoveries of going like That's what I want to do. He does, like, a weird fantasy movie that is just, like, a funny comedy that's got, like, Mm. all this personality to it. And I think this was the one I Mm -mm. gravitated to the most because it straight up feels like uh, exciting science fiction, time travel, blockbuster movie, but bursting with all this humour and personality and strange charm Mm. in a way that felt very unique. And you can kind of take that lineage from Gilliam's past as one of the Monty Python fellas. And I, I, I found that really fascinating. And I think that back in the day, Gilliam would have been one of my guys, like totally. Like I love the Fisher King. Mm-hmm. I love Munchausen. Uh, Brazil was or not always one of my favorites. That's kind of one that's taken me time to really appreciate But uh, I love Jabberwocky. That was Mm. one that I really, really like. I think that's such a strange little movie. (laughs) But I think over time, my love for Gilliam has perhaps, you know, perhaps waned, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find him a little bit harder to get into. And I think there was something about revisiting this film where I saw it in a new light, perhaps, or but some of my attitudes to this film have changed over time, which I was kind of surprised by, because if we had set up this mini series going like, here's the 10 or so movies that we're going to talk about, and 12 Monkeys was on that list, I'd be like, well, that's my favorite in this list. This is the one I love the most. And now coming back off it, I would disagree with that. I don't think it's my favorite film that we've covered, but it is one that... I found so interesting to revisit And how my attitudes have changed in some
0: ways Um, were you a Were you ever a Python guy? Um, not to an annoying extent I can't picture you being into Monty Python
1: No, I like the movies a lot And I went through like a younger phase Of like the sketch show Loving Mm. that too And I do recognise their genius Yes But I think my sensibilities when it comes to comedy have always been more American and Mm. then backed up by, like, Australian. And England, as far as my comedic sensibilities goes... Um, has only ever been channeled through Mike Myers as far as like my influence goes. <laughs> A, Canadian <doing> <laughs> <Yeah. English
0: accent. laughs> A Canadian doing an English accent. A
1: Canadian doing an English accent and their sensibilities of comedic coming from England. It's only ever been channeled through Mike. Yeah. And right. Ricky Gervais, who also, you know, mm. I don't love anymore, but like The Office was huge to me, It was huge love him. to me. And he, he
0: He's a Gary Shandling fanatic exactly. and, a, and a Larry David fanatic So he's, yeah, doing He's uh, doing American comedy in a way
1: Exactly He's their um, answer to uh, Mike yeah. Myers Who's channeling from elsewhere And bringing <laughs> it to an English sensibility He flips the script on the other side of the pond
0: Well, it's yeah, because you You know, it's worth mentioning the Monty Python thing Because, you know, that sketch group Leads to him being able to direct feature films in America And... I was a big Monty Python fan, my dad was, obviously, so then I became one, and i it's bizarre because, you know, I don't love the cartoon stuff in Python. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, you know, in the- in I mean, they
1: don't make me <coughs> laugh. I think they're cool to look at. They
0: are really cool to look at, and they're, yeah. like, visually, they're amazing, but, like, every time they would come on in- Life of Brian or, um, you know, the Holy Grail or in the sketch show stuff, I'd always be kind of like, oh, God, when are we getting to the next fucking scene? Mm. Come on. But I loved the idea of him evolving from kind of making these weird, surreal little Mm -hmm. cutout animations to then stepping up to direct the feature films with Terry Jones and then from there leaping off into... Like a next evolution of kind of blockbuster filmmaking, I think it's a really interesting journey for Mm -hmm. an artist to take to go from the forgotten, weird little freak Monty Python member to Bruce Willis movie, Robin Williams movie. You know, like it's it's Mm. an interesting evolution. So I've always had his back. Um, I've always found him very interesting.
1: We go Ouroboros We Ouroboros on this guy.
0: But I don't think, you know, the older I get, like you, I don't love his stuff as much. And I think it's because his style is and always has been incredibly maximalist. Mm -hmm. And while there's, like, room for that in my palate and in my diet, I can't can't have it all the time. You know, like... You need you need a break from it sometimes. Even after watching 12 Monkeys yesterday, I'm like, all right, I need to put on something a little more subtle now for like, mm. the afternoon, <laughs> you know. I can't I can't sit in this style for very long.
1: I would say there's also something in his films are really imaginative in that true surrealist sense, and I think that you probably have a little bit more appetite for that when you are younger mm. and discovering films you want to like feel the weirdness yeah, in, yeah like totally those kind of ways like where it's like you know now i'm probably more likely to watch more experimental and strange stuff but something that is like just as boldly personality fueled uh into like this kind of like surrealist imagined space that gilliam plays in as a teenager that's the shit man like you're just getting a like unfiltered Uh, Surrealism and personality That I think when you're younger Like that it captures that sense of imagination For Mm. people in like the exact
0: right place Exact right time And to me that's why this movie By casting a couple of superstars Mm -hmm. That appeal to teenage boys um, And girls Is probably what I think that's why this is my favourite of his movies Because it's a good mishmash of young person's crazy maximalist imagination and mm-hmm. movie stars yeah and i, I think agree. we should freaking talk about it
1: let's freaking dive into terry gilliam's reimagining of chris marker's short still-based photography film la jetty and talk sci-fi 12 monkeys <laughs> One man has a vision of the future. Black was everywhere, plague of madness. Another dreams of living in the past. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. <coughs> Crazy as a wound. Both men are dangerous.
0: Five million people are going to die.
1: But only one of them can stop the 12 monkeys.
0: Too late. Too
1: late. Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, Brad Pitt, 12 Monkeys.
0: Twelve Monkeys from the year 1995, directed by Terence Vanskilliaminit, who is officially canonically American, but he has a British sensibility. Uh, we are up to my favourite part of the podcast. God, I go gaga for this segment. It's love that logline. Alexi, you found a synopsis from, I believe, your Blu-ray collection.
1: This is from the back of the Blu-ray of the Arrow video. 20-something frickin' re-release of this movie. This is from a new 4K scan from mm. the last few years. And I'm going to read you the blurb. In 1996, a deadly virus is unleashed by a group calling themselves the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, destroying much of the world's population and forcing survivors underground. In 2035, prisoner James Cole, played by Bruce Willis from Die Hard, is chosen to go back in time and help scientists in their search for a cure. This is 12 Monkeys.
0: This is 12 Monkeys. And I'm Cameron James. And, and you I'm, are
1: Alexi Toliopoulos. That's me, yeah.
0: Now, that's... Um, I have to say that the wonderful people at Arrow, good job at... Uh, succinct, babe. Succinct. You're putting it all in there. You're squeezing it onto the back of a Blu-ray. You've done good work there. I will say that you have played a little trick on the casual observer. Okay. Someone like me, a young fellow who would pick up this box, flick it over, have a read, and go, oh, okay, so this is about... The army of the 12 monkeys releasing a deadly virus? Excuse me, that's actually a bit of a trick you've played on us because mm-hmm. that's not what happens in the movie.
1: No, it's like, that's part of it, but it's not, that's not the main, like you're not, that's not the main thing of the movie. That's There's not other even, things going on.
0: they don't even do it. They, uh, it's a little, it's a little, anyway, whatever, we can get into that. But mm-hmm. this movie stars Bruce Willis. I think we should talk about him.
1: Yes, we are recording this coincidentally mm. on the mm. day of the announcement of his retirement So it's mm. a bit of a somber day in the Willis Hive that we live in
0: mm-hmm, Yeah, and uh, I mean, you and I have spoken at length about Bruce and how privately and publicly
1: Yeah, we've gone on the record and we have kept it behind closed doors in the regards to this matter
0: <laughs> We are both fans
1: Yeah, we love Bruce Willis. We love
0: Bruce. We think Bruce is a bright, shining star. Yeah, we love Bruce Willis. We think he's awesome. We think he's one of the most charismatic actors to ever Mm -hmm. grace the screen, big or small.
1: Yeah, indeed.
0: You know, Um, we also think that he... ...is one of the first and amazing guys to ever make the leap from comedy to action and back again.
1: I would also say that for me, he is a foundational actor when we consider what modern day movie star performances are. He's up there in the same realm as someone like Will Smith, but I would say mm. that... Bruce Willis is probably Eddie Murphy. even Eddie more Eddie Murphy. I'd say he's even more important than those guys when it comes to like the foundation of what we consider movie star performance to be, which I would say is a hybridization of comedy and action together.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I just fucking love him. I've always loved him since I was a kid. I mean, part of the reason why I was so drawn to the Twelve Monkeys. Cover is because I love Die Hard, you know. So I wanted to like see more of this bald fuck on my screens, and yes. uh, and I, I feel lucky to have gotten to witness him in some amazing action movies, mm-hmm. some amazing comedies, some great albums, great B- Bruno albums.
1: <laughs> we love the. I actually do love the Bruno albums, and I, it's one of those fun things I do. I love to play for people and go, "Guess who this is?"
0: Yeah, I and do like, that with oh, Pesci, I don't know. Otis Redding.
1: I'm like, nah. <laughs> It's freaking Bruno.
0: It's Bruno, baby. I put on the Joe Pesci album and do the same thing. People go, is this one of the old, one of the greats? (laughs) Is this someone from the Rat Pack? No, no, no. It's the cunt from Home Alone. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Bruce
1: Willis is so fantastic. And this is one of the most important films in... His filmography, I would say maybe it's my favorite performance of his because I think under specific direction, when he works with like very specific directors that bring their own tone, Mm. I think Willis really, really shines. I think that he works so well with specific direction and guidance in that sense. And the way that Gilliam goes about Going like deconstructing Willis's star, kind of not mm. wanting him to be in this movie at first, but then kind of analyzing what he does and finding his hallmarks as an actor and the touchstones that Willis has in his arsenal, and then just going, uh, no, 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 sir, <laughs> you ain't allowed to do that shit. And it pulling must be them away, so frustrating,
0: uh, to be an actor, you know, and some- someone like Bruce Willis, who at this point has. Ridden the roller coaster already of being like a pretty highly celebrated television star to making that huge leap to movies, reinventing the action comedy genre in a way to get brought under the wing of Terry Gilliam and have him say, Hey, all those things that people love about you, I actually don't love. So can you not do any of them, please? And in fact, I'll get angry at you every time you smirk or do something sarcastic, or do yeah. this particular thing with your eyes that I find crazy. Crazy it be-
1: to have like one of
0: the directions be, I take the glint
1: out of your eye. Moon yeah, Star. can
0: you please stop glinting, and can you please hold your mouth a different way? It mm-hmm. must be so frustrating as an actor to do that. But I actually think that it's it's fucking great to see someone challenged like this. Yes, because yes. this is a uh, this type of role. I think he could have fucking walked through it do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like he really could have gone oh yeah cool he's a post-apocalyptic guy travels back in time he uh falls in love with a girl blah 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 he could have fucking slept through this shit mm-hmm. he could have hudson hawked his way through this shit
1: he could have fucking mercury risen to the the <laughs> freaking heights that he's normally does <laughs> But But
0: to to be challenged and to have someone say, I actually want you to go all out and be fucking a wreck. I want you to be vulnerable. I want you to be a shell of a human being. Yeah, I want you to go more than the whole
1: nine yards that you would normally do. Go the whole ten
0: yards, you know what I mean? Yeah, take it up to freaking 11 spinal tap style, okay? Let's do it. (laughs) I think it's really cool that he actually allowed himself to get, you know, pushed around a bit like this because... From what I gather, I mean, there's a oral history uh, that Inverse did a few years ago mm. about this. And um, Gilliam is, like, <laughs> he's such a prick. He's he, an asshole. He's an asshole. <laughs> he's if he were like- to
1: be English, he would be a prick or a prat. But unfortunately, the guy's mm-hmm. from the USA. He's a freaking ass.
0: He's an ass. And he, like, he's really rude the way he talks about willis Mm -hmm. and he says things like he goes i hate the way his little mouth looks like an asshole and stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) he says he's got this trumpian he has this trumpian percy lipped look that i hate i'm like bro, fucking hell cut him some slack so i think it's cool that he allowed himself to get pushed around a bit because it does actually bring out a new side of him that you seldom see which is like A man not in charge We're so used to seeing Bruce Willis be the guy who Is sort of unflappable Or even if he, in Die Hard for example You know, he's He's not in control But he is able to take charge But this, this is not that movie This is a movie about a guy who like Is out of his depth, is losing his mind And still has to perform Like action hero shit It's really, it's a really nice performance from him
1: I would say my favourite moment in this cam comes from something that is completely out of the realm of action movie stardom and all the movie star qualities that make Willis... They're kind of perfect person to cast and then subvert in this film. Mm. I think this is one of the most subverted moments is this kidnapping scene where he's kidnapped the Madeline Stowe character. Oh, yeah. uh, And he's kind of at wit's end of, like, what he should be doing to meet his mission and save the world. Mm. And they're in a car travelling to Philadelphia together and they're listening to the radio. And you're kind of witnessing Bruce Willis for the first time as James Cole hear music for the first mm. time in his life, and him finding like this slobbering, sobbing joy in hearing like classic, kind of nineteen fifties era mm. jazzy pop somber music. Like I believe it's like it's it's what a wonderful world is. Oh one
0: yeah, of- that's one of them. There's a few others, but what a wonderful world is the one that he really strongly reacts to. Um, I love that sequence. It's so cool to make the choice, both director and actor, to make the choice to have him be properly fucking unhinged because it's like halfway through the movie, you know, and in many ways it's the meat cute kind of. It's the second time he meets Madeline Stowe's character, but if this was a traditional sci-fi action movie, this would be the scene where they develop chemistry and you start to see the beginnings of them potentially being attracted to each other or falling in love. But to play it like a proper, unhinged, crazy guy who like shoves her around and he's he's like threatening her to kill her <laughs> and shit. And he's like speaking in this crazy hoarse voice and crying and yeah, you're right, slobbering, and he's trying to eat scraps of food. It's truly like a special moment, I think. You never, you never see Bruce like this.
1: No, never. And I think the the chemistry between him and Madeline Stowe is built so interestingly in- because it like hinges on like she av- originally feels sorry for him and feels sympathy for him, then she feels fear from him, and then it's like kind of like when you have the full realization of who Bruce Willis is in reality to her, it becomes this fully. Formed chemistry that completely Mm. evolves And I think with two other actors I don't know if you could fully buy it as much As the way that they kind of bring this Kind of cohesive performance together
0: Yeah, I mean I've read the what ifs The casting what ifs for this And uh, I think Gilliam's He knew that there was going to be a movie star involved Uh, I think he wanted Final Cut And as a result of that he didn't really have much say in who was being cast as the lead. And Tom Cruise's name was thrown around and so was Nick Cage. I know as
1: well Jeff Bridges and Nick Nolte were his two choices. I think for- yeah,
0: Bridges was one of his main choices. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think Bridges either for this role or the role that eventually goes to Brad Pitt or and or Nick Nolte was for this role, I think.
0: And you know what, I don't see it with either of them Mm -mm. I love both of them Uh, I don't see it I see it a little more with Tom Cruise and Nick Cage I think you would have gotten something similar Yeah Um, Tom Cruise is really good at playing paranoid You know, possibly delusional He's a very great intense actor Mm. And Nick Cage obviously can bring this wild energy That you don't see from any other performer I would have
1: loved to see Nick Cage in, like, the Terry Gilliam playpen at this time. Like, yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me, kind of letting him loose there. And, you know, it's the one that attracts me the most. But I think Willis does it better than any of them.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think um, Willis brings a real quiet to him that I have I love in this movie. And I think it's like we're at, we're catching him at this time. This is post Pulp Fiction, a year on or so mm-hmm. from Pulp Fiction where and he's- And
1: post-Death Becomes Her where he's like mm, really playing around with like what he can actually do.
0: Yeah, and I think that this is him sort of experimenting with being a sort of quieter, more mm. soulful performer. You see a bit of it later on in his career with yeah. um like the Shyamalan stuff. He kind of mm-hmm. taps into it a bit then. And especially,
1: like, further down the line with stuff like Looper and Moonrise
0: Kingdom, I think Mm.
1: that this is really the first time that we see that Bruce Willis kind of awaken.
0: Yeah, and I I just love it. I I think that the fact that he's so, like, small in this movie actually works, rather than, like, a big Tom Cruise or a big Nick Cage Mm. performance. Because Bruce can go big, and he does a few times in this movie, but he's mainly restrained. Um Which is a good thing, because the other cast members are really kicking it up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And especially, like, I think it works so well in the Terry Gilliam world of this film. Especially in the vision of what 2035 is, the future. I think that having him be, like... If we had a traditional Terry Gilliam lead of, like, a freaking Michael Palin or something like that, it doesn't quite work as well, because... I think, like, the surrealist... Having, like, this guy who is a hard freaking dude mm. in this bizarre kind of, like, ro- like rust-punk uh, future world that Terry Gilliam creates in, like, this dystopian fashion... I think works really well at grounding that future and kind of mm. taking the surrealist aspect and measuring it a little bit without like actually doing anything because it is weird. If you had a weird guy in this yeah. movie, the future yeah. would feel fucking strange and weird <laughs> the yeah. way that it does in other Terry <laughs> Gilliam movies like Brazil, but by having like a freaking hard matinee perfect movie star Grounding Mm. it It just allows it to work beautifully And allow the personality to sing Without it freaking screeching at you
0: You have just described The one great magic trick in cinema Which is just casting Mm -hmm. Perfect casting will buy you in You fucking look at his face You bought the ticket You're there This is the future This is a guy reacting to the horrors Of this weird prison that he lives in I buy it you're mm-hmm. right, if it's Nick Cage, you, you know, who is a great performer, especially at this time, too, when he's in movie star mode, like, you know, Con Air and all that shit around this time, but you'd still be looking at it going, this movie's too much.
1: Yeah, like, this is a this bonkers, is, weird is movie. This <laughs> crazy. Exactly. And the same if you have, like, a Jonathan Price, like a Brazil. Just having, like, a mild-mannered guy allows the rest to go, oh, look how weird everything else around him is. (laughs) But having someone like Bruce Willis who can measure a movie and, like, he is a proper lead. The guy could fucking lead any freaking movie. Like, the way that a movie star can have a whole movie on their shoulders,
0: Mm. it just freaking works. Man, I'm genuinely getting emotional thinking about... Um, his retirement This is mm. really Like it's happening today We You know How long have we been recording for now? We've been recording like for Like 30 something minutes Nearly 40 minutes We found out about it Like minutes before we started recording this And it's It's um It's really upsetting The guy's a mm. fucking singular talent Yeah He's I watched Moonlighting Um Last year I watched all of Moonlighting And he's so fucking good in that I love the whole nine yards, <laughs> you know? It's good. I, <laughs> I loved it too. Like- I love him. I loved him in Maroon Rise Kingdom. I just mm-hmm. want i want more. It's really sad to me that we're not going to get more because we know what he's capable of.
1: And especially, like, he, because he is, like, a one of the last true classic movie stars, you know, he's gotten a lot of flack for, like, the VOD stuff he's had to do over yeah. the last few years. But it does feel really sad that we don't see his elder statesman stage. I know, I know. Like, I would love to have seen what he would be doing in his Clint Eastwood years. Like, what Dude, that would have like, looked absolutely. like beyond old man action films. Mm. Like, you know, that we see so much of people of his age that he's been doing as well. And, like, what he's been doing with Red and stuff. Mm. To go further beyond that and just have a glimpse as what his Twilight would have looked like. Oh. Would- you know, I think we were robbed of some really great movies and a really interesting I guess fifth or sixth act from Bruce Willis.
0: Totally. Totally. I feel the same way. Now, uh,
1: hopefully he can really enjoy his retirement, you know. Hopefully, hopefully it brings him a lot of joy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, he, you know, chill out, Bruce. Have a take a fucking load off, you know. Now, let me ask you about Gilliam because I think I clock out at Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you keep going with him after that?
1: Yes, honey. I've <laughs> kept going with Terry Gilliam to a degree. Um, <laughs> let me just double check that I, I might have even seen freaking everything.
0: You're a Brothers dreams. Grimm fan?
1: I saw Brothers Grimm in the cinema with my father. I did see Tideland. That was the one I uh, clocked out. That was a little bit too strange. The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus saw it in the cinema, honey. Have the Blu-ray as well. Um, oh, my God. I've seen everything. I've seen freaking everything. I'm looking at it all. I've seen every fucking movie this guy's ever made. <laughs> and for the most part, I liked them. A lot of them I fucking love. Like, I adore The Fisher King, the movie he made just before 12 Monkeys. Zero Mm. Theorem as well is uh, him and Christoph Waltz, and it is- The third in his unlinked trilogy of uh, dystopian films with Brazil, this film, and Zero Theorem. Um, And he's never- he even goes, yeah, I don't acknowledge this as a trilogy. It's what other people apply to me. But I guess they're three movies that have similar (laughs) themes and look similar. Similar aesthetic, yeah. Similar themes and aesthetic. And then The Man Who Killed Don Quixote- um, you know, I waited 20 years to see that movie, and I freaking <laughs> did, and it felt like a surreal experience. I felt like I was living in an alternate reality to see one of the most ill-fated Films that have been locked in developmental hell, production hell, and fucking every kind of hell that you could imagine for the last, like, for our entire lifetime, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sitting in the cinema watching that movie, I'm like looking around to see like what else is going wrong with the world. Like, what you know, looking out in the lobby, seeing a poster for freaking Sliced Alone in Terminator Two and stuff. Like, <laughs> what the alternate reality I'm living in
0: is. Yeah, I, fucking I remember when that Finding out Mumford movie is the biggest movie in. in the world. While I'm watching Don Quixote Because <laughs> he's been trying to make that forever And and I reached a point Where I was excited for it for a long time And then I reached a point <laughs> Where I went yeah, You know what If it's taken this long <laughs> And it's a passion project It's going to stink So I just didn't watch it It's is it, pretty is it interesting good?
1: It's yeah. good. You know, it's got great two great leads in fucking Adam Driver and uh, uh, Jonathan Price. So, I think it's totally mm. worth watching. Um, but it is one of those things where, you're like, you can feel the age. Like, it feels like a movie that had to be retrofitted to fit 2018 at some point. Um, but it is pretty cool. The Imagineer of Dr. Parnassus is probably my last favourite movie of his because it is so strange and it's got that interesting story of Mm. Heath Ledger being the lead and then having to, like, kind of find a surreal way to make the movie make sense and for it to be Heath Ledger's final film. Um, You know, I got a lot of thoughts on that movie, but, you know, who knows? Maybe one day we'll do it on the
0: podcast (laughs) so I won't reveal all. So where does Terry Gilliam sit for you in the canon of Millennium Mindfuck filmmakers? Because... Uh, this movie, you know, after last the last couple of weeks, we've kind mm-hmm. of experimented and strayed a little bit from maybe the central idea of what is reality. Mm. This movie seems like it's coming back to those themes of what's real, what isn't, kind of a twisty logic to the science fiction of it all. Where do you, what do you think Terrence Vance Gilliams' like contribution is to the genre cycle and? And what does, he add, what does he add to it? What is he? How has he elevated it? Where does he sit mm. within these filmmakers? That's is a he great pre- question. Is he a precursor to it?
1: I think he is a precursor in the same kind of ca- conversation we had with Strange Days and Catherine Bigelow. This movie falls a little bit early, but I would say definitely like that film, like Strange Days, like Catherine Bigelow's work there, I think it is necessary to get to where we do in the next few years where Millennium Mindfuck truly becomes like a genre cycle. Mm. I think that it lays a lot of the groundwork down for the idea of these films being auteurist visions. Like, this feels like a Terry Gilliam film. It looks like a Terry Gilliam film. And it does kind of clock the ascent of an auteurist filmmaker having a surprise huge hit with The Fisher King then mm. being brought onto a bigger league of film and so it kind of rings true for that but also I think like where you know originally I didn't consider it because you know it is a bit of a mind bender but it feels like a fairly straightforward mind bender it's it's got style and it's got filmmaking style and it's got personality but those don't Blend up with the mind bendingness of it all. The mind bendingness is kind of like in the plot and mm. barely in the structure, but there are moments like questioning what is the reality. Even though when you're watching it, you're like going, "No, this is all true. He's not crazy." Well, that's you know?
0: one thing that I have a problem with. It. I think I I love the idea. Of uh, a guy questioning his own sanity. Am I actually from the future? Am I here to save the world? Or am I a lunatic? I love that idea. I don't think it's fully achieved in Terry Gilliam's telling of the story.
1: Yeah. all, I- I the, think- peoples, uh, all the, the peoples. all the peoples. The screenwriters. Not well- the peoples as in like the... People's population choice. of Earth, <laughs> yeah, people's choice. But this movie surely won back in nineteen ninety six.
0: I think, yeah, I know what you mean. I wonder. I haven't read the screenplay. I wonder if it's if uh, there were some structural changes because I feel like that was an element that they really. I've read them talk about it. They loved the element that we're not sure if it's real or not. But the way this movie is structured, we always live in the reality of a guy who's come from the future. <laughs> We, yeah. don't, we don't meet him in 1990 and we are then forced to question, is he really from the future? We meet him in the future, you know. And so, as an audience, we just go on that journey with him. And I um, think that's kind of
1: why, watching at this time, Cam, I had almost zero patience for the asylum, sanitarium, uh, mental health institution aspect of this movie. And I, just because I'm like, I know that it's not a crazy guy. If we started in there with mm. him, maybe I'd be like, okay, cool. So we've got to begin here and question it. But because that is the most surreal aspect of the movie, watching it this time, I was like, I don't think I fucking like this movie anymore. And then as soon as we leave its freaking padded walls, I'm like, oh, this movie fucking rocks.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with you a little bit there too. I mean, I think if you and I were to do a rewrite or a recut of this movie... Of course, uh, and we plan to. And we plan to for our reboot section on this podcast. Um, I would start it there as well and I would make it more of a questioning thing. But I don't think... I think that's an aesthetic choice and a, a stylistic choice that Terry Williams not that interested in. I don't think he really gives a fuck in... Questioning is it real? Is it not? He just wants to tell the story and give us the images that he finds cool and bizarre And so I respect it in a way Like I I could watch it this time as just pretty much a straightforward science fiction action movie That has some wackadoo elements to it The one thing, the real poetry of the movie is lifted from La Gitae. Yeah, um, which is a I,
1: beautiful short film. If you've never seen it, probably on YouTube. It's definitely it a Criterion Channel. Yeah, and how would you describe that film to people?
0: Shit. Well, I mean, you know, if you know, stylistically, it is photo montage. Essentially, the whole film is told through stills with narration, and it's a 28 minute, you know, short film that uh, tells the story of a post apocalyptic. World where uh, a soldier who's living underground is chosen to go back in time to kind of figure out why the world ended essentially and he's chosen because he has one clear memory from his childhood where he witnessed someone die and so he's able to cling to that and it makes him a stronger mind for going back in time which is used in this movie as well that central premise is used in this movie and, I mean, it's no spoilers here. The the poetry of La Jete is that he is the person who dies at the end of the movie and he mm-hmm. witnessed his own death as a child. So, it has that Ouroboros mm-hmm. um, vibe to it. And we love that Ouroboros shit.
1: We love that. And I think the other thing about La Jete that makes it so powerful is that it really uses the structure of the film and the stylistic choice of it being still-captured images to really harmoniously mm. sing this theme of memory and mm. love. Mm. And I think that this film captures that in some way, obviously yeah. less overtly because it's not a short arthouse movie where yeah. you can hinge the whole movie on going like, hey, this is what memories feel like to me as a human being. I think that this is a really beautiful translation of those art house themes to a fairly fucking mainstream sci fi blockbuster style movie.
0: Yeah, fully. It's um, it's nowhere near as beautiful as Jete, but it is still cool, and I think the poetry of it still resonates to me all these years later, where I know the twist, and I know that when we see- what we see at the start is what we're going to see at the end. It still lands for me in a way, I think And I, I think, you know, the, seeing that and seeing the way it's framed And the way it's kind of set up as a theme throughout this film I believe that that is the pure DNA that um, Christopher Nolan has pretty much ripped off for his entire career Yeah, wow That exact thing of going, look, the start is the end and yep. it's, a th- it's a thematic through line, and it's tragic, and it's beautiful, and it's inevitable. You know, without, without this movie mainstreamifying a French art house film from the 60s, mm-hmm. um, I don't think we have Tenet. Yeah. And I think quite directly so, because Tenet yeah. has that exact trope in it. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> I would also say, like, one of the reasons why I think this really nicely fits into this miniseries and fits into this genre cycle and kind of kicks off this genre cycle in a way exactly in the same way strange days does is that it really is about the moments. Like it really is about the difficulties the human race has in their place, in their time, leading up to the new millennium, leading up to the new century. And it being about this environmental problem, this health problem and the kind of fear that we were living in in the late 90s or even in the mid-90s when this movie coming out. This uh, and Strange Days feel like the early ones in this genre cycle that feel like films approaching the Y2K fear that people had. Like even the ones that are closer up to 1999, mm. 2000, these two films earlier on in this cycle feel like the Y2K films, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think of these more than I think of um, the ones that came a bit later. And I think it's just that uh, that paranoia, mm. the inevitability of society's decline. And it's also, you know, we're watching this movie in 2022 and um, we're living through yeah. <laughs> this movie. We're <laughs> living in what? freaking 12 monkeys. We're living dude. in 12 monkeys time. And it's it is an interesting thing to look at now and go, wow, we've been really worried like artists have been really concerned with the demise of humanity for a long time and it's almost felt inevitable that something mm-hmm. like this was going to happen to the fact that this movie and outbreak came out within months of each other yeah just goes Twelve to monkeys sh- and one fucked up monkey and kid. one <laughs> fucked up monkey was like You know, writers, artists, whoever Scientists probably hypothesizing Have been thinking for a long time That we're gonna fucking go Yeah And it's all gonna be due to some germ, you know Like that we potentially made So it's it's interesting to watch this and think these are the these are the themes that people have been grappling with for over 30 years, even longer, fucking yeah, hundreds of years. Since the
1: dawn of man's culture, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've been wrapped up in the idea of our demise. Um good lord, what a dark way to <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, let's go from Demise to talking about those guys. Let's give away award to Best Character Actor. Those
0: little golden guys. (laughs) Those
1: little golden fellas. We're talking about the freaking Oscars. And we're going to bestow upon this film an Academy Award for Best Character Actor.
0: Uh, and we actually, uh, the, the character actor we've chosen today, and there were a lot to choose from. There's a lot of fantastic performers oh, in this.
1: David Morse is in this freaking oh, picture. Oh,
0: good grief. Of course, you got Christopher Plummer mm-hmm. popping up in there. Christopher Maloney pops uh, up in there. Your guy, one of your guys. He's one
1: of my guys, and I often tell you... I demand he be one of your guys. Because whenever I watch Christopher Maloney, I'm like, Cam could be fucking doing this shit. I think he's the best.
0: <laughs> I do love Christopher Maloney. He fucking rocks my little docks off. <laughs> <laughs> my doc is freaking off watching <laughs> this guy. My doc is being rocked off. <laughs> But we do have to give it to one specific character actor and I do believe he was in fact nominated for an Academy Award Mm -hmm. for his performance in this film and that is, of course, the wonderful Bradley Pitt.
1: Yes, Bradley Peach Pitt himself, one of the great character actors of all time. Now, this (laughs) is something that I have said. I've said this. I've gone on the record saying this. Mm. Brad Pitt. Mm. He is a handsome man. To look at this man, sure. Yeah, sure. I go, this is a movie star. This is mm. a leading man. Mm. But then if I am to witness him in a movie, I will often say there's someone trapped in that body that he's rocking. That's <laughs> I really look interesting. beyond the abdominal muscles. I mm. look beyond those beautiful, I believe, blue eyes. Sure, and I search beyond them. And I see into that soul. And beyond those iron bars of his mm, eyes, mm. I see trapped within that prison is a fuck-ugly little monster, you know, like a freaking Toby Jones hiding in there. <laughs> 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 There's a character
0: actor trapped in that leading man's body. Well, I, I want to just say, uh, I think I'm the first person to say it. Um, the guy's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body.
1: Yeah, he is a character actor like, you know, a freaking- (laughs) Like Danny DeVito. He's a freaking Danny DeVitoid, hidden inside the matinee idol looks of a Burt Lancaster. He's trapped and imprisoned in there. And I say that one day, the man will become ugly and finally will be like, Oh no, he was a movie star, we fucked up.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I just want to say one time, just really quickly, I think that Brad Pitt is a character actor trapped in a a leading man's body. Yeah, you
1: said it really quick, and I'm going to take a few minutes to say the same thing a lot slower and more thoughtfully. Okay. When I see him... I often go, this is one of the greatest movie stars of our time. Sure. I think about his leading performances in stuff such as The Troy. Curious Kate of Benjamin Button. I see Troy. I see other leading performances such as Seven Years in Tibet. Meet or Joe Black. Meet Joe Black, The Legends of the Fall. The interview with the Vampire. And then I go, wow, okay, these are movies, there's something not quite happening for me here. But then I watch him do something like the Cohen Brothers movie Burn After Reading and I go, this makes so much sense seeing him in this. But I can't quite put my finger on it. It's almost as if I want him to be a character actor, yet because he is one of the most fucking gorgeous hunks of fucking mm. meat and chiseled mm. freaking alabaster this world has ever seen, he has been forced to perform as a leading man.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing him... Uh- In, uh, I think, Thelma and Louise and thinking, Mm -hmm. this guy's clearly a movie star, you know. But then a few years later, I see him in something like 12 Monkeys and I go, I think this guy's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body.
1: It's so interesting you bring up Thelma and Louise because when I (laughs) watch Thelma and Louise, one of the people I'm most drawn to in that movie is a little actor by the name of Stephen Tobolowsky or Tobo. Yeah. And I'm like, this man has got this X factor about him. He is so innately charming, yet he looks strange. He's bald. He's got these big bulbous eyes and a big nose. But I see some quality within him where I go, that guy is a matinee idol trapped in the bald head of a character actor.
0: Yeah, and yet the opposite applies to Brad Pitt, who I think is a character actor trapped in the body of a leading man. And
1: with this role where he plays a rare supporting turn early on in his career like this, mm. what your opinion do you like?
0: I, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with his performance in this movie. I mm-hmm. thought he was crazy. I thought he's he jittery. was whack-a-do, he's motor mouth. Oh, uh, he's uh, you know he gets to do these big showy monologues. I believe he's got
1: these twitchy fingers doing little hand gestures and maneuvers.
0: And like we talked about on the Vanilla Sky episode, I, I think when I was in year eleven, I attempted some version of this for a, a drama monologue, wow, like okay. some form of like because we were talking about how everyone attempts like a asylum, like crazy. asylum yeah. thing in uh-huh. year eleven and twelve. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this was one that I attempted And I think it's it's really When you look at it, it looks so fun mm-hmm. That you think this must be easy <laughs> Yeah He must just be like going crazy on set But I've since read that he really struggled with it I mean, he wanted to do it because he wanted to prove To, I guess, himself and to the industry That he wasn't just the pretty boy Yeah Um, He wanted to say, look th- I can actually be fuck ugly and weird and I can look like Johnny Knoxville as well. You know, I can have the weird eye and the weird voice. And he really worked at it. He had an acting coach. He had like a dialect coach to teach him to even speak that fast because naturally he's not a fast talker. He's slow and lazy with his bloody language. Mm -hmm. He had to work at it. He had to work on the physicality. And I believe he also really tried his hardest to not go too far and be cartoonish. And I'd say sometimes he does go cartoonish.
1: Watching this movie yesterday, didn't like his performance. Didn't like it almost at all. And I'm like with you, I used to love this performance and go, oh, you know, actually his finest work actually is in Trey Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, where he actually does like a character actor type role in something quite strange. And it's actually a worthy Oscar nomination. He probably even should have won the freaking Oscar for it. Watching yesterday, I was like, man, freaking Steve Buscemi would have crushed this. Or like...
0: Oh yeah, Bashimi's great he, he could do a good job But I'll tell you, I'll say this uh, We've now had the privilege and pleasure of watching Bradley Pitt um, Work on screen for decades And we've seen him evolve as an actor And we've seen him mature as an actor And we've seen him deliver performances That are layered and bizarre and kooky and nuanced In ways that are very different to this But I think mm. this performance opens the door I agree He can walk through And and thank God for it Because without Terry Gilliam Pushing him through this door We wouldn't get The Coen Brothers performance We wouldn't get The Tarantino performances mm-hmm. um, You know I don't even we- think We'd get freaking Guy Ritchie's Snatch
1: Which is one of my favorite yeah. Brad Pitt performances Of this era yeah. There's just something about it Where I think it doesn't have the layers of those ones further. This feels like a bit of a surface level thing, and it's a great interpretation. But I don't know. I was I was so
0: bummed that I was like, "Oh man, oh, he's this young in this, man. I, I read an interview with him yesterday where he says, um, "He says like I think I really nailed the early scenes of this character where it was a it was a lot of hard work, and I got mm. I put the work in, and I really." Brought some manic energy that I'd never tapped into before But then he says But the second half of the movie I think I blew it Mm. And he's like I just couldn't quite nail the tone Where all of a sudden this cartoon character Is now supposed to be the villain Yeah And we're supposed to be scared of him But then the big reveal is of course That he was like hot air and not really anything Mm. And I, I think I agree with him I think these early It's a very showy early sequence with him And it's Maybe too much, but I think I still appreciate it and I can look at it and go, this is an actor expanding their skill set yeah. and adding more colours to their palette that he'll then be able to refine later. But I do think the second half, you know, long hair Brad in this movie, he doesn't nail it. I think it's... um, mm. He didn't quite land it. And that's okay. He's a fucking young actor at this point, you know. I'm still going to give it up for him. I think he deserves the Oscar and... And I, f- I love this fucking character actor. I love him. Yeah,
1: he's one of the great character actors of our time.
0: I think he's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body. That's really interesting that you say that,
1: because I would agree. <laughs> uh, I think it's time we give away another Academy Award. And this one kind of goes to this movie and most filmmakers out there as well. I'm uh-huh. G- willing to give up an Oscar for. Filmmaker's freaking hard-on for Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo.
0: Yeah. The little gold trophy goes to every director out there who's got a stiff prick over Vertigo and decides to homage it. Yeah, they love...
1: They love to homage Vertigo, those filmmakers. Christopher Nolan, all his movies feel like a Vertigo movie. Vertigo, of yeah. course, is a freaking beautiful 1958 film from Alfred Hitchcock. It is widely regarded as his greatest work, his strongest mm. film, and I would agree. Mm. I think it's I think it's the best. I love that movie. Yeah, it's got I do have a hard her. on for it. I have,
0: it a, I have a stiff prick over it. I think it's Really cool. The first time I went to San Francisco, I, of course, went to the Mule Woods. I mm-hmm. went to that famous tree cutting, and I took a photo pointing at the rings of the fucking tree. This is tree. where you were
1: born, and this is, this where, is where you where shall die. fucking die. Okay?
0: I love the movie. I love the ghostly vibe of it. Mm-hmm. I love the colors. We've seen it We've seen it ripped off a million times. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, the music as well. It I oh. love Love the score.
0: But you're right. A lot of cunts have uh, made films and said, I want this to be like Vertigo. And in fact, I might even show some characters watching Vertigo in this. And
1: this movie, they go to the most beautiful (laughs) rundown cinema you could ever imagine Mm. and watch Vertigo on a big ass screen. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah, that's awesome. And I love it when she freaking models her hair, puts that blonde wig on to look like freaking kim novak in vertigo we have the vertigo score as bruce willis sees her and recognizes her for the first time with that blonde wig on that's sick dude
0: yeah it is sick to just like a movie and then kind of recreate moments from it in your own movie you know like it's (laughs) it's just cool to go hey i want to do that i might do exactly that moment
1: yeah but it's I'll get so ar- cool, I'll dude. get
0: around it by having the characters also watching that movie.
1: Yeah, and then you're just like, yeah, I know it. I know that's Vertigo. Okay, and this time Vertigo, but also
0: Bruce the Bruce Willis
1: guy's kind of a little bit like Jesus, so it's also my Christ allegory film.
0: <laughs> it's crazy. We haven't talked much about Christ allegories on this. <laughs>
1: mini-series. Well, this this mini series basically <laughs> cut back, put it in every episode. Every one of them has a Christ allegory in yeah, there somewhere. Yeah, they Christ
0: movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, I love Vertigo, and the uh, DNA of that movie is in La Jetée as well. He's um, yeah. Chris Marker is obsessed with. I think he went on record as saying it's the only American movie that he liked.
1: Yeah, and you know what's crazy? La Jetée comes out in 1963, like five years after Vertigo, and the guy makes like this beautiful piece of art, like as a response to Vertigo. Like it mm. kind of goes to show, like how. Unbelievable that movie is Especially when it just drops I mean who talking about a movie dropping In 1958 <laughs> when Hitchcock Fucking plops out he Vertigo? he plonked
0: dude? down Vertigo On the, when on he the goes, silver screen He smashes it down and goes yeah have this He goes Oi I'm fucking Alfred Hitchcock it. I'm gonna give you some fucking Vertigo Yeah <laughs> when he fucking drops Vertigo, bitch! He's like, and that movie, fucking James slaps. Stewart can't even go up a ladder in this movie. He's, He's fucking freaked. scared of falling over. He's a fucking pusso. He's a fucking pusso. <laughs> He's meant to
1: be a cop. Are you having a laugh? He's—he's he's a fucking afraid of a freaking
0: wobbly feeling he gets when he's up high. He's a fucking cop. Are you having a fucking laugh? You're having a fucking laugh, mate. And Kim Novak's bloody blonde innit? So enjoy this slice of vertigo, you yeah. fucking cretins. <laughs> when he drops that, and then Chris
1: Mucker like, oh, sacré bleu! I must make a response to this. <laughs> To Take vertigo. some photograph, put them together, and *Miss Vertigo* for me to you.
0: <laughs> so thank you. I might watch *Vertigo* today. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm actually gonna chuck it on. I got the 4K. I'm gonna chuck it on tonight.
0: One of my I watched it like movies. a year ago. I'm gonna put it back on again. It's so good.
1: I reckon this is the reboot This is the total reboot section Let's get straight into
0: it More Vertigo I think you've got to make yeah. this movie more Vertigo Do you know what I want? I want <laughs> I would reboot it But the whole movie is just Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe Hiding mm-hmm. in a cinema watching Vertigo Yeah And kind of commenting on it And <laughs> and like doing mystery science theatre style Wow Little asides about Vertigo yeah. And then you got Chris
1: Marker in the back row. You've got the Palmer in there. You got Nolan. Yeah. You got all the Vertigo boys just the watching the nuts. movie, talking about like, "I love this part. I love it when they go to the tree." Yeah. How oh, I love bit? that
0: belt. How good's that green light?
1: Yeah. The uh, the other the other idea I've got. This movie has got a lot of Dutch tilt angles in it and stuff. Mm. What about we kind of do the oh, larger yes. pay thing? <laughs> <laughs> where it's like, you know, in La Jete, everything is a still image. Mm. Everything is like it's a still. Their photographs kind of pieced together in montage style. Mm-hmm. What about we make a movie where every shot is a vertigo shot, like a dolly zoom? <laughs> every single shot of this movie has a dolly zoom where we push in with the dolly and zoom out with the lens and we do every every single shot is a version of this vertigo honestly, shot honestly
0: it's like the only movie that would make you puke in cinema And <laughs> after like the 12th one you'd just be like "What? I can't this every single shot even like we got a cutaway of like a fucking set of <laughs>
1: keys on a table and every single shot it's got the movement on it. It's got the freaking dolly zoom. The only that movie that so gives funny. you vertigo, I would yeah. say, is how
0: you do it. That's such a funny... That would be such a funny student film to make. Mm. It's just like the student <laughs> film is so excited about learning how to do the vertigo shot. That <laughs> <laughs> they do it for everything. Every establishing <laughs> shot. They put every scene has got a vertigo shot. <laughs> every nice like wide. Re- every it's just two people <laughs> sitting at a table. <laughs> every over-the-shoulder is a vertigo shot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like, oh okay, they've they've they filmed like one long vertigo dolly zoom and then they cut in between uh, at different points in the conversation of two <laughs> ones. Everyone's Each a new one. Single, like, everyone is a new
0: one. Resetting the dolly. <laughs>
1: Resetting the dolly for every line of dialogue that you go <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> Just going fucking in and out the <laughs> whole time. <laughs> You're fucking puked, dude. Um, <laughs> I'm going to puke thinking about it. I the only, <laughs>
0: the only I'm I'm sweating idea. talking about <laughs> it right now. The only reboot idea I had was uh, inspired by your your mention earlier of like you know if Michael Palin was cast as the lead in this. And that is, uh, Terry Gilliam remakes his film, but with all Monty Python cast members. Oh, wow. And it's, just a I new Mo- that. it's a new Monty Python movie, and they, they play multiple characters. Oh, yeah. Michael and Terry Jones would be great. Terry Jones plays the um, <laughs> Madeline Stowe <character. laughs> In a Big fat dress and a wig. He's like, oh, I remember you. You were a naughty boy. <laughs> and it comes out, it comes out now. Yeah. So most of them are dead. <laughs> <laughs> most of them are dead. This
1: movie stars freaking Graham Chapman's urn. <laughs> Whenever they cut to freaking Brad Pitt, it's just an urn going like, well, yeah, that's that will be what I've got here. It's my, my old mate, Gra- Mr. Chapman over there. Oh, God.
0: Oh, look, we've had a bit of fun talking about this movie.
1: God, it's a blast. Uh, this is a real fun one to catch up with. If you've never seen 12 Monkeys, well... We basically talked about it the whole time, so you know <laughs> you can pretend you've seen it to your friends now. If anyone you asks can you about watch it, if
0: you want, it's on stand. I, I, mean, I still think it's a very fun, cool movie. And like you texted me while we were watching it, you said it's so rare to see a big sci-fi action blockbuster that has this much personality nowadays. And that's, I think that's reason enough to watch it because every time I watch a movie like this now, it feels the same. But this is this is fucking wackadoo. Comes from the brain of Terence the Python Gilliam. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Montague Python himself. It's really... I think it's worth a watch.
1: It's awesome. Um, and I would say that, you know, my... I don't love it as much as I used to, but I think it's one of those films that truly, truly comes together in the end. Like, the end of this movie, you're so swept up by it, mm. and it just comes. It becomes so cohesive and like, everything that it explores by the end to become something that really sticks with you. Um, and also, check out La Jetée if you've not seen it. Uh, next week on the podcast, we are going to go in for one final film, Our final instalment on the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries. Cam, what movie are we discussing?
0: We are discussing Dark City, which I have never seen, but I understand that it is an Aussie film.
1: Yes, Alex Proyas, Greek-Australian filmmaker. We love Alex Proyas. Well, I do, at least. Cameron has not seen Dark City, so he will probably be making his opinion on the podcast lifestyle next week, babe. Uh, (laughs) But it is a twin film of The Matrix. It's a reality bender, a mind bender, a millennium mind fuck must-see movie from that era. And like The Matrix, it is filmed in freaking Sydney, Australia. So Mm. we're going to be talking about... Dark City next week on the podcast. In the meantime, join us over at patreon.com for more episodes and stuff from us. Cameron, you are kicking off very, very soon, to Melbourne International Comedy Festival
0: run. That's correct. April 12 to 24, I'll be in Melbourne doing my show Electric Dreams where I sing the songs that I wrote as a teenager and tell the story as to why I tried and failed to become a famous musician I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to doing it. Yeah, I can't wait to l- see love, this show. I'd love to see some freaking reboot rats out there.
1: Yeah, the reboot rats. This would be a great one for everybody to see. It seems like this will be definitely a freaking new direction from Cameron James.
0: <laughs> it is the beginnings of a new direction. Direction. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Ooh, sorry, I sorry, just, sorry. 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 There's a Freudian slipperoonie just there.
1: Uh, so check that out the links to that are in the show notes until next time please go see classic movies in the cinema freaking vertigo style babe